Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. God gives all of us the freedom to rebel. God also allows us to drown in our sin if we choose to. The lie we have accepted is that God isn't paying attention, or worse, doesn't care about us. The truth is God knows we are broken, and He has a plan for our redemption. In the midst of our despair, Jesus brings healing and restoration. Will you choose to trust in Him? What do we believe as a church? We believe three things as a church. We see this in Scripture. and As a church, when we began in this home maybe eight years ago, studying Isaiah 61, what we realized was that there was these three really important truths in Isaiah 61. Number one, there was always, always, always hope beyond our brokenness. There's never a place where we were completely lost outside of God's blessing, outside of God's plan, outside of God's purpose. And we just sang a bunch of songs today that said, like, no matter how hard life gets right now in your life, like, God is still going to use and work in, in all of that pain. So there's hope beyond our brokenness. And then the next thing that we learned in studying Isaiah 61 is that God wants to form in us deep, beautiful, strong roots of trust in him. And that we're not trusting an idea, we're trusting or, or a culture, uh, or we're not pretending or speaking Christianese to one another. You know what I'm talking about, right? How was your day? Awful. Oh, well, bless you, right? We don't do that, right? We don't do that. That we're going to trust God when we're angry with God. We're going to trust God when we're ecstatic. We're going to trust God when we're on the mountaintop or in the valley or when we're dead on the side of the road, exhausted and weary with grief. Amen? And, and we don't do that alone. We do that together. And then lastly, we get to bring restoration. So Lena's heart is breaking for someone in her life that she works with and that she cares about, and then all of a sudden, she gets to be a blessing. There's people in your life, in your circle, in, in just servers and checkout people that you talk to, and your mechanic, and and whoever mows your lawn if it's not you, and that there's people in your life that you know could be a blessing. I think I told this only to the second service last week. Forgive me if, it, if, I, hadn't, if, I, told you, if I didn't, if I told you this last week. But there's a, there's a, did I tell this last week? I was just saying, I forgot to get a volunteer. Oh, great, perfect. We can get a volunteer. Okay, Rosemary's gonna do it. Great, yay. Okay, so there's a, there's a, does anybody know where La Jolla is in San Diego? Yeah. Right, you're not allowed in unless you make over $500,000 a year, right? Uh, so, uh, so that's where La Jolla is, and this, this couple in La Jolla wants to give away $1,000, I don't know if it's every week or every month, to somebody that they don't know. But they, because they're only, nobody is allowed in La Jolla that's poor, nobody needs $1,000. And so they went and contacted one of their pastor friends and said, would you please give this away to somebody that needs $1,000? And he looked around, you know, and he lives in Oceanside, which you're not allowed in Oceanside unless you make 
more than $400,000. And he says, well, I don't know anybody that's here. And so he calls his friend, Bob, who, who now lives in Florida, and says, Bob, I don't know what to do with this $1,000. Will you take this $1,000? And Bob says, sure, absolutely. And then he looks around to where he is in his community in Orlando, and, and nobody in that gated community that makes less than $300,000 is allowed in. And he's like, I literally can't find anybody that needs $1,000. And so he said to me, Bob said to me, I prayed, and Jesus said, Andy, give it to Andy. And like, I think everybody here knows somebody that needs $1,000. Amen? Right? Like when you like walk down the street and you see somebody, you probably think they probably need $1,000, right? Right? So we got a check for $1,000. So that means that next time, that, or that your, the money that you're giving today and also in second service is going to be matched. So you're giving away a lot of money this week. Uh, and then Joe, I believe, is going to take it for the second service. So can we all just pray, Lord Jesus, whoever's giving $1,000 away in La Jolla, would you start doing it every week here for a change for a dollar? Amen? Okay, good. Yes. I just love that. I love, I love, love, love that you guys see that we get to bring restoration right where we are. And it is such a joy. It is such a joy to do that. So each one of these truths, that there's hope beyond our brokenness, that we get to trust in a risen Savior and bring restoration right where we are, has a choice attached to it. And we say this together every week to once again say yes to Jesus and his way and his kingdom. Will you say this with me? Will you read this? Will you proclaim this, confess this in your heart? Let's say this together. We are disciples who walk intentionally with God. Therefore, I choose to be changed by Jesus. I choose to seek Jesus first. And I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection work. So Isaiah, uh, we started Isaiah last week. If you weren't here, let me give you a quick recap because context matters. Um, Isaiah is alive at the same time as uh, Daniel like Daniel in the lion's dead, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This is 720 BC, okay? So it's still the time of Pharaoh's. Alexander the Great would come 400 years later. Jesus would come 300 years later. Does that make sense? Okay. And it's a dark time in Israel's history. Um, the king's job was to lead people to God, and the kings at that time were not doing so. Instead, they were just drunk off success. And so it's like, oh, we're, they, they, they literally were arms dealers. That's what Solomon and his reign did at that time. They, they, they sold tanks to people. M1 Abrams, right, with the depleted uranium shells, right? Really amazing. Those are called chariots back in the day, right? an armored vehicle, right? They made that and sold those. Um, and all of their vain pursuit of prosperity and security apart from God are about to be crushed by the invading Assyrians. That's the country to the north, modern-day Syria. That's the Assyrians. And so Isaiah is writing in the midst of 
the nation of Israel's greatest political and theological storm in their nation's history. And Isaiah has this vision of God that we read last week in Isaiah chapter 6. The king has just died. So that's chaos, right? Say yes. yes. That's chaos, okay? When the head of your household dies, that's chaos. When your boss dies, that's chaos. When your king dies, that's chaos, okay? Yet what does Isaiah see when he goes to church? The, the, he sees who on the throne? God. Yeah, he sees God on the throne. Look, you have things that are absolutely happening in your life right now that feel like everything's falling apart, and I'm here to tell you this morning that God is still on the throne, and he's still ruling, and he's still reigning. Amen? Amen? And then Isaiah then sees God for who he really is, and God's much bigger and more incredible and more astounding and more overwhelming than Isaiah can ever realize. And this is a problem for Isaiah because he literally has one job in his life. He is a prophet. He's there to speak the truth about God to his people. Problem is, is that he's had a version of God that has been incorrect. Remember what we sang in Good, Good Father? I've seen, I've heard a thousand stories of what you're like. So we have all these stories about what God is like, but then Isaiah sees God for who he really is. And in in an instant, Isaiah realizes, I'm doomed. Woe to me. Oh my gosh. I live in a nation that I know is polluted, but I didn't know that I have the same problem. I too am a man of unclean lips. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah has this another experience. From the altar where the sacrifice is being made, this massive angel that, could, that literally could destroy cities takes a coal from the altar and takes it to Isaiah's lips and purifies him, cleanses him, atones for him. And Isaiah has to sit in all of the awe and all of the love and all of the humility to understand that God Almighty in the presence of Isaiah's uncleanliness and foolishness doesn't smite him, but pays the price for all of that, to love him and forgive him. That's you. That's you. And so we're invited into this journey. That's how we ended last week. For you and I to get rid of this orphan mentality that God's way out there separated from us, like Paul was talking about. He's not separated from us. He's, he's in the middle of our experience, in the middle of our furnace, and he's asking us to trust him. And that's what today is about. And so we're going to go over, we're, we're just going to take a, an aerial view of about 15 chapters in Isaiah because for 15 or 16 chapters, It's basically Isaiah saying, you've got a problem, and 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 don't forget about you. Yep, you too, Augie. Yep, uh, yep, you've got a problem. Yep, yep, Meg, you've got a problem. Yep, Rose, mm mm-hmm, we know all. Scott, yep, you're laughing now, but wait. Yeah, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. You, right? So we could do that for like the next 11 weeks, but then like the church would be empty, and, and maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. 
Here's the gospel. Can you read this with me? Next slide, Nadia. I'm more broken than I want to admit, and yet I'm more loved than I could ever dare to hope because Jesus, who is holy, 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 has died in my place as my sacrificial lamb. Here's what I want you to understand. Isaiah saw God all wrong. And after his vision, Isaiah saw himself clearly because he saw God clearly. Let me repeat that. After his vision, Isaiah saw saw himself clearly because he saw God clearly. Does that make sense? If you see God as angry or aloof or irritated with you, then you'll think to yourself, I'm all alone and it has to be all up to me. So you've seen God incorrectly and now you're viewing your own job and your own life incorrectly. You're out of balance. Make sense? You picking up what I'm putting down, yes? Yes, you got it, yes? But if you see for God who who he really is, holy, majestic, absolutely in charge, on the throne, absolutely glorious, and intensely interested in you, full of mercy, not giving you what you actually deserve, and love, pouring out on you what you don't, that changes everything about you. So are you ready? Isaiah 6, we're going to pick up right where we left off this last week. Are you ready? Verse 8, read this with me. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Send me. I love this. What would you expect with God Almighty on the throne who's Angels are singing worship so loud that the temple is actually shaking. When God would then seek to send somebody, what do you think the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would do? Would he say, who will go? No. What you'd expect is God to say, "Mm, you are the poor sucker, right? (laughs) That's not what God does. God invites you and me to step forward into our own free will and say, I am willing to serve you, God. And when you see how big and glorious and how good God is, of course you want to, right? Of course you want to. And so he said, God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, what does he say? God's asking you, are you willing to be a part of my kingdom and to do things my way and to be about my business and to love like I've loved you and to forgive and to be generous and to be kind? Who would be willing to live this way? You, you could say what Isaiah says. Mm, there's like 22 of you that said that. The rest of you are like, uh. You want to try it again? Who would be willing? Your hands, sister, me. Yeah, 
Good job. Good job. I know all of, like, there's so many moms that just elbowed their husbands and kids. You better say it. I took you to church. This is the one thing I wanted today. So what did, what does Isaiah sign up for? Verse 9. I love this. Ready? And he said, God said to Isaiah, go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God says to Isaiah, that's your message. That's the end of the sermon. What? Think about it for a moment. We're similar in our culture, where if you've been in church for a long time, you can hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has died for your sins, and it makes absolutely no difference. It doesn't move your heart. It doesn't change your thinking. You just think that's a nice fact. That's seeing without perceiving. That's hearing without understanding. Does that make sense? If you went home today and found a check in your mailbox for a million dollars, right, that would change your mood. (laughs) Yes? And then if you realized that someone had collected every single penny that they've ever earned and liquidated all of their assets and gave it to you and chose poverty so that your debts and rich so that your debts could be paid and you would have all the riches that you would need would that move you? Oh, half of you would be like, "Eh, whatever." No, of course it would move you. And what you've received from Jesus is infinitely greater, infinitely greater. You're the wizards of a cosmic lottery which will pay out for all eternity. But that culture doesn't understand or perceive. It doesn't land in their hearts. They just think, yeah, that's nice. But what about my life right now? And then God says to them, listen, Isaiah, make their hearts dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes. Because if they could see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, what would they do? They would turn and be healed. That's a tough assignment. Go tell a bunch of people who think they know the right answer the answer that they don't want to hear. And for all of us who think that we know the right answer, what we don't want to hear is that we're the problem. Yes? I thought we're here because we have the right answers and the people who are not here are the people who have the problem. Right? Aren't they the issue? I mean, you know how long it took me to drag myself under this roof which I thought I would collapse, Andy? Now you're saying I'm the issue? Well, I'm not. (laughs) Isaiah is. And God. So there you go. Don't shoot the messenger. Oh, man. So what does Isaiah do? Well, by the way, have anybody know anybody who's stubborn? (laughs) Don't look at the person next to you because they're looking at you too, right? How do stubborn people respond to confrontation? Right? Not great. You know? Usually with it's, usually it's, well, oh, yeah? 
Well, you know what, you're, you're not, what? It's not me, oh no, it's you, right? So that's Isaiah's, Isaiah's job description. God says, I have a mission for you. And I go, Isaiah goes, oh, awesome. I'm gonna heal people, right? Oh, no, 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 I'm a prophet. I'm gonna like speak the truth and they're gonna get it, right? And God says, no, <laughs> no, 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 um, they're not at all, right? So God, so Isaiah, I mean, and it just gets worse from here. Like, like Isaiah says, how long do I have to do this? And, and God says, yeah, till the whole nation's destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> It's how you know when you're doing a good job that the people and the place that you love is taken over, you know? It'd be like, it'd be like if, if the Central Coast turned into Bakersfield, no. right? <laughs> right? Everybody would be like, no, please, no, right? Yeah, that would be it, yeah, yeah. So then Isaiah goes to the new king, Ahaz, who's terrified of this coming Assyrian invasion, and he tells the two, king two things. First, it's going to get worse before it gets better, right? And we can understand that. We're like, okay, at least there's a little hope. It's going to get better. But worse, dang it, all right, fine. And second, when it gets better, you won't be king. How do politicians handle that one, right? No, they usually just have that person killed. That's how it works, right? In fact, Isaiah says to Ahaz, the king that is actually gonna rule and reign will look very, very different than you. Have you heard this verse before? Isaiah says this to King Ahaz, for to us, the nation of Israel, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And Ahaz at this point is thinking, yeah, baby, that's me. I know, I know, I know, I'm the son, right? The government is on my shoulders. I get it. And then he says, Isaiah says to Ahaz, and his name shall be, and Ahaz is like, Ahaz, that's what his name's going to be. Yeah. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor. Mm-hmm. Ahaz is like, yeah, I'm pretty good. Mighty God. And Ahaz is like, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And at this point, Ahaz realizes that it's not about him. Isaiah, Isaiah tells Ahaz, a baby's going to save Israel, not you. God's saying to you, I want to use you in your family and in your life and your, your place of work and your community, but you're not going to be the superhero you thought you were. People are going to give me glory, not you. And the king is, he won't just be a wise counselor, he'll be wonderful, meaning worthy of worship. And he won't just be human, he'll be God. And he won't be an angry father because of your foolishness, he'll be a father that parents for all eternity and therefore is good. And he won't be a prince who leads your armies to military victory. He'll be a prince of peace. peace. What is Isaiah teaching us about God? What's God like? Well, he's bigger than you think, but he's different 
He's different. God does things way differently than me if I was in charge. Thank God. And then in the same breath, Isaiah is going to spend the next three chapters bluntly introducing King Ahaz and the people of Israel to their stubborn refusal to trust this good God. And then Isaiah is going to tell them that Assyria is going to invade from the north and destroy half of Israel. Things are going to get worse before they get better. But what does that mean about God? Wait a minute, Andy. You're saying to me God is good, God is glorious, God does things different But then at the same time, Israel keeps on having all of this heartache. What's going on here? How can God allow all of this? Like, an Assyrian evasion is not a joking matter, right? You don't want your neighbors and your houses burned, raped, and pillaged. Amen? How could God allow that? Isaiah says to them, you will say in that day, this is chapter 12, verse 1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. Read this with me. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This makes my brain scramble. Wait a minute. You're telling me I'm going to say, God, you're my strength, you're my salvation, and at the same time, Life is going to get way worse before it gets better? I don't understand. How can God be good and kind and holy and still allow his people to be crushed by invading armies? You might have heard this question phrased in a different or more familiar way. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But notice what this question assumes. Number one, it assumes that God doesn't know what he's doing. That's pretty arrogant of me. The Lord who created all things and time itself, and I want to tell God how to do his job. Hey, man, I've been around for 40 years. I know you got $4 billion, but like, I know better what you should do in my life. No, I can't add three numbers together at the same time. No, I don't remember what I said two weeks ago. Yeah, I'm telling you what to do. That's right. That's the first thing that it assumes. It's, I'm arrogant enough to assume that I know that I can boss God around, that I have enough wisdom and perspective and intelligence to declare that the God of the universe is somehow incompetent or negligent at his job. That's number one. It also assumes that I bear no responsibility for my stubbornness or my refusal to listen to God. And here's the thing that I'm learning about God. He will let me suffer the consequences of my decisions. And if you're a good parent, for the love, let your kid fall on their face. Helicoptering your parent, being a helicopter parent and saving them from all the consequences of their decisions does not work. Seven of you have said amen. The rest of you are like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, yeah. You know why? Because if you never let your kid actually fail, they will become an entitled twit. It's true. They will think, oh, look, 
why isn't the red carpet rolled out for me? How come no one's peeling my grapes? I should just be able to say and do whatever I want and there to be no consequences. Is that the real world? No! I'm gonna say it again. Is that the real world? No. No. God would be a terrible parent if he never let me learn from my mistakes. People who don't learn from their mistakes over and over and over again, they're called sociopaths. Okay? They end up in prison. God allows me to suffer that because he wants me to see this isn't working. Yet when it comes to my behavior, what I'll do with God is saying, well, I don't know. You're so mean. And God's like, no, you chose it. I warned you, you chose it. I warned you, you chose it. I warned you, you chose it. It's like Pharaoh, right? And all of the plagues, God wasn't like, I smite thee. God was like, hey, don't do this. 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 You're doing this? Hmm. Okay, you're going to get a bunch of flies. You listening now? Pharaoh's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Pharaoh's like, nah, I'm just going to go my own way. And God's like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. How about some frogs? <laughs> like, it ramped up until kids started dying, okay? Like, there was a lot of chances there, right? God is not cruel or mean. The other thing, why does, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? It assumes that God is somehow apathetic or negligent when he allows me to make my free will, right? Decisions. Oh, and I'm so guilty of this, right? I was talking with my friend last week, and I'm like, how come, like, they just keep on hurting you? Like, why is it that this isn't even allowed? And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you have these people in your life that keep on hurting you. Like, why doesn't God do something? And she's like, why are you bringing God into this? It's not God's fault. It's their choice. And I was all, ooh. I want God to take away my free will and your free will all the time. I want God to suspend how the universe is created all the time so that it benefits me by making you into a robot. Please just erase their humanity so that they don't keep on causing me pain. Or erase their humanity so that I don't have to be bothered by their impositions anymore. It's not how it works. This is the wrong question to ask. A better question to ask would be this. What do I learn? Read this with me. What do I learn about God and myself when I observe that God allows for me to freely rebel and make terrible mistakes, living like an orphan, hurting myself and others, and still God makes a plan for my rescue? That's a better question. That's a better question. Let me tell you a story about what it's been like for Christians living in Afghanistan since the fall and the Taliban taking over. It's been nothing less than brutal. I'm gonna tell you a story of Luke, Ramazan, and Ramat. In medical school, here's Luke, not the white guy on the left. That's Josh. We'll talk about him later. Um, there's Luke on the right. Luke was a devout Muslim. He went to medical school, wanted to be a doctor. 
first person in his family to go to school. And when he was studying the Bible, or the body, not the Bible, the body, he realized this is a... His professor said to him, if we tried to create machines to replicate all of the all of the organs, they would never fit inside the body. The machine would be bigger than the size of a car, right? And Luke was like, oh my gosh, there's no way that this couldn't, this, this is random. This is happening by design. And so he started talking to some of the South Koreans that were studying with him in medical school, and they started praying and talking to him about God. And Ramazan, it took two years, sorry, not Ramazan, Luke. It took two years for Luke to become a Christian, but he finally did. Well, Luke's younger brother, his name is Ramat. Here's Ramat. Um, Ramat was a mullah. That's like a pastor for, for um, Muslims. But he was a pastor for the Taliban. Okay? And Luke told him one day at a family gathering, I've become a Christian. And Ramat just started to beat the tar out of him. And Luke, being the older brother in that very traditional culture, had the ability to command Ramat not only to stop, but also to command Ramat to read the New Testament. And Ramat, out of duty, would have to obey. By the first time that he read through the New Testament, he was totally confused. By the second time that he read through the New Testament, Ramat gave his life to Christ. They're experiencing, as Christians in Afghanistan, this is just when we were still there, you know, before the fall. It's absolutely uh, terrifying. You still couldn't be a Christian legally in Afghanistan. Luke and his friend Ramazan, so here's Ramazan. He's on the right. There, Luke is on the left. There's that white guy, Josh. We'll talk about him in the middle in a minute. There's Ramazan on the right. Ramazan, both Luke and Ramazan were arrested for being a Christian, and they were taken to the police station where the Afghan intelligence service um, charged them with cr- crime of provoking differences between religions. And there was a lot of evidence in their homes. They collected Bibles and books, but the worst of it was on their computer where they had emails that they were sending out to other Afghan Christians as well as all this Bible study resource um, there. And they both, Luke and Ramazan, were beaten and tortured in the Afghan prisons for months on end until finally Luke signed a confession saying, I am uh, a Christian and you can put me to death for my crime. But God even works through corruption because when they were to bring out the laptop that would prove that Luke was guilty, someone in the Afghan intelligence service had already long stolen it. (laughs) So they literally flew Luke and Ramazan to some random city in Afghanistan, dropped them off, and let them go. What kept them going? What would keep you going? If just simply believing in Jesus meant that you were treated this way, what would keep you going? And their challenges didn't end there. It was just the beginning. Luke made it home to Kabul where his wife Sarah and their two young daughters started to pray with friends at night because all the churches were shut down. And at first it was 10 friends. And then, and then after three months, it became 450 friends. But then these guys took over, the Taliban, in August of 2021 when President Biden disastrously left behind 100 Americans and 62,000 Afghanistans who were working with the Americans to the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. And so Christians immediately became hunted in Afghanistan, like literally the next day in August of 2021, Christians started being hunted. 
And they fled from city to city as the Taliban swept across the country in a single week. At one point, they were staying in an abandoned hotel, and Taliban was on the same floor as them. They drove 10 hours to a different airport through 19 different Taliban checkpoints and uh, waiting at the airport with their young children, totally dehydrated, exhausted, um, waiting five days on the tarmac for a plane to land and allow them on board so that they could escape. So remember that white guy, Josh? He and his wife, Jenny, had worked in Washington, D.C., and they were staffers for Senate senators for 10 years. Now they're missionaries in the United Arab Emirates. And they were there helping coordinate all of these families to leave Afghanistan. And their job was to cut through all the red tape. Day and night, Josh and Jenny would talk to their Afghan friends and then their contacts in DC. And months and months and months went on, exhausted, afraid, up 24 hours, many days, of the week trying to connect with Afghan friends, finding them, connecting them with all the visas, flights out. It was an absolute nightmare. What kept Josh and Jenny going? What keeps you going? What keeps, what keeps me going? What kept me going when my son was having unstoppable seizures and then had brain surgery? What kept you going through your diagnoses? What kept you going when you when, when you lost everything, or like when Paul said, when, his life, when him and Jesse's life just absolutely fell apart in a moment. What keeps you going? Now, my pastor friends, don't tell me the answer yet. Just keep that tension there for a moment. It's a really good preaching tool. My pastor friends will tell me, oh, it's going to get better. God has a plan. My son's still disabled. My wife is still going blind. Evil people still hurt those whom I love. Afghan Christians, as well as those in China and Ukraine, are now being brutalized and murdered. We still suffer the consequences of our actions and our inactions. And yet, all the while, there's this internal dialogue that I'm tempted to believe about God. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why won't you do anything about my suffering? And yet, this year, sitting in my counselor's office, I described what the previous 10 years had feel, felt like before me and how it feels being betrayed or how it feels suffering or how it feels being absolutely alone or how it feels being unloved and that the hits just keep on coming one after another. And Isaiah, he's going to talk about all those hits in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and it's all the same story. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And then my counselor asked me this such an annoying question. He said this, where is Jesus in this black hole? And that's when I started to cry. Because the moment that my counselor asked me that, I just, my eyes were closed and I just saw this blinding light. And I saw myself in this pit. And my back was broken and my legs were broken and I was just broken. And there was my Heavenly Father. And there was my Jesus. And there was my Holy Spirit. 
pulling me out and putting me back together again. I didn't see God when I look at the sunset. I don't see God when I look at the mountaintops and all of his creational glory. I saw God at the bottom of my pit. And that's what keeps us going. The very presence of God in the middle of my pain. You're not alone. Your name is beloved and worthy and chosen and obedient and, not, and enough. And he cares about you right where you are right now. And it is going to get better. And I'm not going to take away how hard it is right now. Because Josh and Jenny, they helped 400 Christian Afghans escape. And Luke and Ramazan and Ramat, they made it on that plane on day six, waiting on the tarmac. And now they live in the U.S. and they have started online training for Afghan church leaders that they can access safely online. My son is still going to be dis disabled, but he's hilarious. <laughs> and two nights ago, he wrapped his arms around me and gave him a hug and said this, boo, 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 boo. <laughs> and that's the first time I've ever heard him make those consonants in my entire life. And more than that, my heart is being healed in ways that I've always wanted but never could imagine. And you have the same story after story after story after story after story that the living, breathing God of the universe has met you in the middle of all of the pain in your life. And you can say, it is well with my soul. That's why in chapter 25, the dark clouds part and I did, Isaiah delivers a message from God to his people on the mountain called Jerusalem. Verse six, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine and Chick-fil-A and the best of meats and the finest of wines. The next slide. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud. You know what a shroud is? That's what they used to wrap bodies in for burial. If you ever go to Italy and go to the town of Turin, you can see the Shroud of Turin, which is the burial cloth that Jesus was wrapped in. It's spectacular. So he'll destroy that shroud. He's going to destroy death. Hallelujah. And he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Read this with me loudly. The Lord is spoken. Yes. Yes. This is what your God has done, that you are more broken than you could ever imagine, stuck in that pit. And what did the God of the universe did? He left the heaven that he has created for you in order to rescue you at his own expense. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. So what's the practical application here? Verse, uh, skip ahead two slides, uh, Nadia, to chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust you. Read this with me. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, 
is the rock eternal. What word is repeated? This is your practical application. When everything starts falling apart, your job is to say, to turn your eyes, trust in the Lord. That's your, that's your job. When things are hard, when things are difficult, don't try and fix everything all at once, all by yourself. Go back to God over and over and over again. Yeah, but Andy, but what about the Lord? I know, but she, the Lord. But he wants the Lord. But they're not the Lord. But I feel, no, the Lord. And that's the one thing I've been learning over and over and over again is come to Jesus in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, what next? What would you have me do next? He adores you. He's going to help you walk through this valley, the shadow of death, and lead you to the other side where a table waits for you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for my friends here today. Thank you, God, for their faithfulness to you, the joy in their hearts, their willingness to praise you even when it's difficult in their own lives, their incredible generosity. Bless them, bless them, bless them, bless them. I pray for my friends who are suffering and pain physically right now. God, I pray that you'd bring healing. I pray for all those who are really concerned about family members right now. God, I pray, make a way where there is no way. Lord, I lift up every mom right now that is just aching for their family to be made whole. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. And Jesus, we, as the body of Christ, say we will hold on to you even if it gets worse before it gets better. And we will praise you now. And we will praise you tomorrow and the next day because you're good. Pastor Andy Rock is the senior pastor of Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website, www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.